Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Titus this morning. And Titus, and we'll be venturing into Titus chapter 2 this morning as we continue our series on the faith-filled church. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in our culture we have an increasing problem with what some are calling a prolonged adolescence, especially among males. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? The guy that's 30-year-old, still lives in his parents' basement, uh, spends most of his time playing Xbox or PlayStation 2. Back in 2005, the Sunday Times in London reported that young British men are turning into what they said eternal bachelors. And the nation is turning into a bachelor nation overall. In fact, statistics reveal that men are now marrying at a lower rate than any other time, even lower than the most intense times of World War II. Almost 10 years later, then the New York Times uh, reported that one of the most notable demographic trends of the last two decades has been this delayed entry of young people into adulthood. According to a large-scale national study conducted since the 1970s, stated the New York Times, it has taken longer for each successive generation to finish school, establish financial independence, marry, and have children. In other words, today's 25-year-olds, compared with their parents' generation at the same age, are twice as likely to still be students, only half as likely to be married, and 50% more likely to be receiving financial assistance from their parents. Now, while most might say that is a bad thing, the New York Times sees this growing trend as not only okay, but helpful and even beneficial. The New York Times reporter concluded this, specifically relating to marriage. He said, for many, after its initial novelty has worn off, marriage fosters a lifestyle that is just too routine and predictable than being single. Husbands and wives both report a sharp drop in marital satisfaction during the very first few years of their marriage in part because their life just becomes repetitive. A longer period of dating, New York Times concludes, with all the unpredictability and change that come with a cast of new partners may be better for your brain than marriage. And so their case goes for rather than against this prolonged adolescence. But the disturbing nature of this rising trend is even more evident with this conclusion as do the reasons we as the church should especially be concerned. You see, the extension of adolescence not only delays the accepting of roles and responsibility that make for mature, faith-filled Christians, but in the end could actually eventually weaken the message of the church, belittling the transforming effect of the gospel on the lives of, of men and women. Well, it's to this problem in our culture today that the message of Titus 2 speaks resoundingly clear. For just like our culture today, the Cretan culture was filled with men enslaved to their own passions and desires. Men seeking to satisfy whatever craving they had in the moment. Men lacking any discipline and maturity. Men more attentive to their own needs than to the needs of others. And so this morning, as we continue our study throughout this book of Titus, we discover Paul opening chapter 2 by uncovering a stark contrast between the faith deceivers that we talked about last week and those who are truly faith-filled. 
a glaring distinction he shows us between those who live for their own desires and those who live for the glory of God. But you, Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 2, you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. You see, godliness is not merely an option, it is essential. And so having just shown us in the end of chapter 1, the inconsistencies of the false teachers, what they were teaching as to what they were living, Paul now calls Titus and the church to consistent living, and living based on sound teaching, based on the gospel. For true gospel change comes from the inside out, not from the outside in as the false teachers were teaching. Again, we remember that if the heart is healthy, healthy fruit will surely come. And what is the fruit that the gospel produces? We'll look down at verse 2. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good, so that they may, be, so that they may encourage the young woman, women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything, Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach that any opponent will not will be so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters and everything and to be well pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness, so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. You see, this is the transforming effect of the gospel on real lives. Men enslaved to their own passions and desires now self-controlled, respectable, sound in faith and love. And so this is God's word for us today. And before we continue, let's ask him to work in our lives through it. Father, this morning, we would ask that you would work in our lives through your word especially for us men, as we focus in on the men this morning in this passage. And we would ask that you would reveal where we are looking for satisfaction in something other than you. And even last week, as we saw that we need to crave the truth, for it protects the church, it protects our families, that we would crave that truth and it would produce this fruit of self-control and respectability and sensibility. And God, that you would do this good work in us, uh, not just for our glory and our fame, that we would be seen as upstanding citizens, but most importantly, for your glory and your fame, that people would see us and say, wow, there's something different, and we'd be able to proclaim the good news that has changed us from desires and passions of our own to desiring and passion in you, in you alone, in your name. Amen. As Titus finds himself in a culture dominated by self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction, Paul here encourages him to this consistency in gospel ministry, to a, a making disciples who make disciples. Disciples that are filled with faith and for the fame of Christ. 
Now, you might have noticed as we've read this passage this morning that Paul is shifting his attention slightly away from the leadership of the church, as was his focus in chapter 1, and now onto four groups of people within the church, specifically older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. And then in verse 9, he does talk about slaves or workers. But for the next two weeks, we're going to look at these groups of people and to what the gospel ministry of disciple-making should look like within the church. Next week, we'll address how women are to go about this ministry, of, of Titus 2 ministry, as we've often heard. So this means we're look, looking at the men this morning. And what we see here in this passage is that a faith-filled man adorns the gospel in how he lives. And so that's the big idea. The faith-filled man adorns, he makes the gospel attractive in how he lives. He does so in three specific areas. As we look at verse 2 and verse 3, and then we jump down to verse 6, we're going to lump all the men together, and we're going to see three specific areas where the faith-filled man adorns the gospel in living self-controlled in his actions, living serious in his thoughts, and living sound in his faith. You see, man, I believe what God wants to exhort and teach us through this passage this morning is that a faith-filled man lives distinct in his living, a distinct life that makes the gospel attractive to the watching world around us. So we first observe that this man adorns the gospel by living self-controlled in his actions. In a culture where self-control was an anomaly, this character quality would have been clear evidence of gospel change in a man's life. As we've noted the past couple of weeks, this culture uh, of in Crete was not good at all. The society was filled with people you could not trust, you couldn't believe what they were saying, people undisciplined in not just a couple areas of life, but in all areas of life. And so to find this man who would be self-controlled in his actions, the man who was able to keep his tongue, keep his fist from fighting, his body under control was totally abnormal, no matter what the age young or old. So we see an older man is to be self-controlled. And in verse 6, again, the younger man to be self-controlled. Here in this passage, Paul instructs both to be self-controlled, and we'll actually see next week, both the older and younger woman to be self-controlled as well. One author writes regarding this fruit of self-control, it's one of the essential characteristics of the Christian life and one of the purposes of the incarnation. One of the purposes for Jesus coming, you see, the truth is, ever since the fall of man, self-control, discipline, has been a problem in our world. Cain could not control his anger and ended up killing his brother, Abel, in Genesis 4. A couple pages later, we see the sons of God could not control themselves, seeing the beauty of the daughters of mankind, and so God saw the corruption on the earth and destroyed it with a flood, in Genesis 6. Even Noah, the one that was blameless among his contemporaries, could not control himself with wine and became drunk and naked, Genesis 9. We have the story of the Tower of Babel, King Saul and his anger. Even the new king after Saul, remember that quote-unquote man after God's own heart, David? Even he struggled with self-control to the point of lusting after another man's wife and then having that man killed so he could have her. Over and over again, as we go throughout the story of God, throughout the Bible, we see this struggle with self-control. 
That is, until a perfect man shows up on the scene. The Son of God who took on human flesh, became like us, tempted in every way like us, yet was without sin. You see, as we look at the pages of the Gospels, we see Jesus self-controlled. Self-controlled as Satan's tempting him in the wilderness. Self-controlled in the face of scoffers and false accusations. Self-controlled in the garden as he cried out to the Father, Not what I will, but what you will. Self-controlled on the cross as he hung there with even those who were being crucified with him, mocking and taunting him. And he prayed, Father, forgive them. And see, the truth is, it was his self-control that enables and empowers our self-control, men. We cannot control ourselves in our own power. But because we have his strength working powerfully in us, we can be self-controlled by him. And so, men, are we self-controlled in everything as Paul exhorts the young men? verse 6 and 7. Are we growing in this self-control by Christ's power in us? If you ever find yourself in the gym, which for some, that would be a strange thing to find yourself in the gym, right? But if you ever find yourself in the gym, working out, you're, you're sure to come across a gym rat. You know what I'm talking about? The gym rat? The guy that has shoulders the size of a refrigerator, but legs the size of a 13-year-old. Uh, he, he is the one that is always in front of the mirror, curling. Uh, he's the one that's carrying that gallon of water around the gym. He's grunting uh, every time he lifts the weights. And he's never doing squats. He's never exercising his legs because he's all about the upper body. It's all about those bulging biceps, the defined chest, the ripped abs. Cares nothing about hamstrings, quads, or caps. That's a man that's disciplined somewhat, but it's disproportionate. He's not truly a disciplined weightlifter, right? He's not truly disciplined. And sadly, though, there are many men in the church who share a striking similarity with this guy. Oh, they're disciplined in attending small group Bible studies. Discipline in Sunday morning gatherings and serving on the, on the worship team. But those unseen disciplines of faith, they're just easily forgotten. He's mastered the visible rituals of religion. But the inward integrity of humility, self-control, and patience are severely lacking. Well, the ministry Paul exhorts Titus to here is this ministry of seeing men grow in this distinguishing characteristic of self-control in everything, to being disciplined, men who would forsake self-indulgent living, who would abandon all self-serving pleasures, self-satisfying whims, self-promoting dreams, men who are disciplined not just in one area of life, but all areas of lives, not just the visible areas that people can see, but all secret areas, men who know themselves because they've opened themselves up to other men for accountability and correction. Men, do you know yourself? Are you inviting others into your life? I want to encourage us as men here this morning to apply this exhortation from Titus to self-controlled 
living, by seeking the accountability of other men in all of the three character qualities we see, but especially in this area of self-control. Let's invite other men into our struggles to be disciplined. Invite them in to ask them to push us towards Christ-like self-control in our actions. We can't do it on our own. As we read in Ephesians 4, as the church gathers around each other and speaks the truth in love to one another, we need each other to be self-controlled. But Paul not only addresses a man's actions, his actions of self-control, but also his mind and his thoughts. So we continue on in verse 2 to see that a faith-filled man adorns the gospel by living serious in his thoughts. While the call to live self-control dealt with in actions, the next two character qualities listed here in verse 2 deal more with a man's thoughts. He is to be serious or respectable, dignified, sensible. He is to be temperate. Now, this doesn't mean that a man's to be boring and gloomy. It just means he's not frivolous. He's not flippant about life. He is a man that is serious about life and about God. He has a spiritual maturity that has been shaped by learning from his past mistakes and failures. He has discernment and discretion. And he's sharing that with the other men in the church. He's taking the younger and bringing him alongside. He's taking the spiritual, spiritually immature and bringing him alongside to teach him the ways of the serious, seriousness in thinking. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul uses the same word, sensible, as he encourages us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We're to have sound judgment. Once again, there in Romans chapter 12, that's the effect of the gospel on our lives. For Paul states earlier in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in view of the gospel, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You see, the fruit of the gospel is a change not just in our conduct, but in our reasoning. For as Paul tells us in Colossians, even our minds were hostile to the things of God before he reconciled us through his death. But now, once we've been redeemed by God's grace, our minds are renewed. Renewed by what one theologian, Graham Goldsworthy, calls an ongoing process by which our thinking is conformed more and more to the truth as it is in Jesus. More and more conformed to the truth as it is in the person of Jesus. And that's exactly Paul's point in Philippians chapter 4. Turn there with me. See, this is all over Paul's writings, this area of being sensible and renewing your mind. Philippians chapter 4. Paul is encouraging the church in this area of thought renewal through the gospel, stating in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and what? Your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true... 
Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, praiseworthy, dwell or think on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Oh, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, verse 10, because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. I know both how to make, make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Do you notice the effect of the gospel renewing the mind in these verses? He says, anxiety is crushed. Contentment is formed. And it's formed when we present our requests to God in prayer, when we dwell on things that are honorable, pure, and just, and specifically Christ. That's when he will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so, men, are we seeking this type of renewal of our mind? Are we allowing the word to shape our thinking about life? Or are we those who worry and are anxious about everything? Or are we like Paul content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need? And are you asking men to speak this truth into your life? Are you speaking it into others? When studying this passage, I couldn't help but think of one of my dear brothers down at Redeemer in North Carolina, a man named Mike Cluthy. Uh, we have a visitor from Redeemer this morning, right up here in the front, if you didn't know that. Uh, Larry Routhie's here from, from Redeemer. It's great to have you here, Larry. A visiting family. And so Larry knows Mike and can tell you about Mike. Mike is an older man who on the very first Sunday that we arrived in North Carolina came up to both Megan and I and began to share how despite past failures in his life that God was showing himself continually faithful and teaching him daily of his sufficiency. You see, Mike and his wife had separated a couple years before we met Mike after about 20 plus years of marriage. While the details of the separation are both sad and, and somewhat confusing, the resolve that God had produced in the life of Mike to continue to love and financially support his wife was amazing. Mike was living in a one-room apartment with barely any resources for himself. Why? Well, because he had resolved to continue to support his wife financially by paying for her apartment, paying for her food, paying for her daily needs. And while she continued to reject his pleas for reconciliation over and over again, he remained faithful. Faithful in his love and commitment. Honestly, there was no human explanation for Mike's actions towards his wife. The only explanation is the grace of God at work in his life. You see, Mike was a man, is a man of true seriousness of thought. A man who was daily renewing his mind, and as Larry could attest, is quick to come and tell you the truths that he is thinking about from God's word and how the word is shaping his life. Mike is a man who's daily denying himself for the good of others. A man who is truly content, and his contentment had been formed by the peace of God guarding his heart and mind. 
And now I share that with you, not to build up Mike, but because Jesus is amazing in the life of men like Mike. Jesus is amazing in the life of men who are struggling in marriages, struggling with self-control with their thoughts. Jesus comes in and he redeems the situation. He produces this kind of seriousness of thought of not just being flippant, but being respectable and sensible about what life brings. Are we those type of men? Are we renewing our mind, seeing life through the, through the lens of the gospel, seeing every thought captive, Paul says, to obeying Christ? But Paul addresses not only a man's hands and his actions and his head and his thoughts, but also his heart. We finally observe this morning that the faith-filled man adorns the gospel by living sound in his faith. He's living self-controlled in his actions, serious in his thoughts, but then at the end of verse 2, sound in faith, love, and endurance. Here Paul drills down deep into the heart of a man who adorns the gospel. This is where actions and thoughts receive nourishment. Once again, because of the inseparable link between faith and practice that Paul has been showing us, it's no surprise that we read these words sound in faith here. A man can only live self-controlled. A man can only live respectable and sensible because he is sound in his faith. Faith is what enables godly actions and thoughts. Sound in love is what enables God's actions and thoughts, or man's actions and thoughts. These are the kind of men, writes David Platt, who not only know what they believe and why they believe it, they also know in whom they believe. This is the man who says of his God, even when I cannot trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. Though I cannot trace God's hand in this situation, I trust his heart for me as his child. You see, faith-filled men have a healthy confidence and trust in the Lord because they know that he who began or started a good work in him will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So men, let's have this truth that God is the one who is carrying on this work of sanctification, growing our faith. Let that fill us with faith and strengthen our faith. That though we don't know what's going on in our circumstances. We can always trust the heart of God for us. It's for our good, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. But there might be no better chapter in Scripture to see examples of this faith, of this soundness of faith than Hebrews chapter 11. Many refer to it as the hall of faith. And so would you turn there with me and let's look at some of these men of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 The author here is illustrating faith from Old Testament examples. And he does so in order to motivate his audience to endure under the threat of persecution. And to be, as he states in chapter 6 and verse 12, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So here in Hebrews chapter 11, he recounts the faith of Noah. Verse 7. Verse 8, he recounts the faith of Abraham. Verse 23, the faith of Moses, and the list goes on and on. But now, notice at the end of this list of faith-filled men and women, 
what the author writes. Look at verse 32. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bounds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword, and they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith. But they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Therefore, chapter 12, it continues, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes not on Noah, Abraham, Moses, but on Jesus, who is the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the faith, the healthy confidence and trust that was gifted to these men and women was given through Jesus, the source, perfecter of faith. What all of the examples of faith here in the Old Testament and listed here in Hebrews 11, what they all point to is Jesus. What the soundness in faith, evidence in the life of transformed men that we read of in Titus chapter 2, what that points to is Jesus, not to the men themselves. You see, living soundly, healthy in our faith, love, and endurance has as its goal what Paul says at the end of verse 10 in chapter 2 of Titus. So that they, again speaking of all the people he's talked about so far, not only slaves, but men, women, that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Why would he exhort men to be self-controlled, respectable, sensible, sound in faith, love and endurance, so that we may adorn the teaching of God our Savior and everything, so that the gospel, the transforming effect of the gospel on real lives would be amazing to a watching world. Being faithful men is not about our fame, but the fame of Jesus. Well, there are some historical figures who stand out because of their amazing accomplishments, and then there's some who stand out because of their depth of the character that they had. There are only a select few that stand out for both their accomplishments and character. Prominent among these is one man named Eric Little, the Flying Scotsman. Many would know Eric Little from the Academy Award-winning film Chariots of Fire. And yes, now you all have that song going through your, through your head. In that movie, it recounts the story of how Little famously decided not to run on a Sunday because of his strict observance of the Christian Sabbath. Mm -hmm. 
But because he was the greatest sprinter in the entire world at that time, his choice not to compete in his signature event, the 100 meters, was ridiculed by the British Olympic Committee, ridiculed by fellow athletes and the world's press. Yet, to, shock, to the shock of the world, he triumphed in a new event, the 400 meters in Paris. But what Little is most known for is not his Olympic gold medal, but that he ran and lived, as he said, for the glory of God. See, after winning the gold medal in 1942, he dedicated himself to missionary work in China. There he married and had children, but with the war looming on the horizon, he was soon forced to put his pregnant wife and children on a boat to Canada. While he stayed behind, compelled by his conscience to stay among the Chinese and proclaim the good news of Jesus. Soon, Eric and thousands of other Westerners were eventually captured as prisoners of war. Nevertheless, Liddell continued to practice his faith. One author writes, He became the moral center of an unbearable world. He was the hardest worker in the camp. He counseled many of the other prisoners. He gave up his own meager portions of meals many days and organized games for the children there. But for his ailing, malnourished body, this was all too much. Liddell died in 1945, just before the end of the war. But you see, Liddell's faith was not for his fame. Oh, fame came his way. Fame came his way as he won the gold medal. But the faith was not for his fame. It was for the fame of Jesus. He was willing to give up the fame of the fastest runner at that time to spread and proclaim the good news of Jesus. Men, are we adorning that kind of faith in our living? Is our faith healthy? Are we willing to forsake fame for ourselves for the fame of Jesus? And Paul shows us here that the faith-filled man adorns himself in living self-controlled in his actions, serious in his thoughts, and sound in his faith, in his love, and in his endurance, in his hope. And he does so with other men in his corner, fighting with him and for his faith. The word disciple or making disciple isn't, doesn't show up here in chapter 2, but as you look at verse 7, Paul exhorts Titus to make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So filling this chapter, this first half of this chapter, is this work of gospel ministry with one another, of men coming next to men and pushing each other towards self-controlled living, serious thoughts and soundness and faith. As we'll see next week, women coming alongside of one another, pushing each other towards Christ-likeness to the fruit of the Spirit on display. The truth is, Paul's identification here in Titus 2 of how the gospel changes and empowers men is of great importance because it is a necessary correction to the way many men live their lives today. Not only in the world, but also in the church. Sadly, a large percentage of men in the church today are, are driven by a consumer mentality. They value only what is beneficial to them and partake in only what pleases them at times that are not disruptive to their schedules and cost no significant 
not significant enough to burden their lifestyles. Such men pick activities of the church that they are attracted to, but have no thought about how they could serve others. And so what Paul shows us here is that men who are truly faith-filled are the ones who have a sense of personal investment in other men. A personal investment in this ministry of being disciples who make disciples for the fame of Christ. And so men of Christ Fellowship, may we hear God calling us this morning to faith-filled lives, to the ministry of making disciples of one another, and to the mission of seeing new disciples made for the fame of Jesus. That we would be men that live self-controlled in our actions, men who are serious in thought, and men who are sound in our faith. May we heed God's call through this passage this morning and get to work for his glory. Father, this morning... This is a quick challenge to us. Uh, it, it shows us that we, we need you. Even this week as I was reading through these verses and studying, I felt the need for, for you to produce this in me. And so even this morning as we were hearing your word and, and now responding to it, I pray that you would fill these men here with faith that, Again, you began this good work and you're going to complete it. That this fruit of self-control is not produced by pulling up on their own bootstraps and getting to work themselves, but it's by God's grace, by your grace in us. And that that grace comes through words from other men, speaking the truth. It comes through us craving your word, renewing our mind through your word daily. So may we be men who hold tightly to your word, crave it. And we hold tightly to one another, knowing that that brother that sits next to me, across from me at the coffee shop, across from me at lunch, needs me to speak truth. And I need him to speak truth into my life so that we might display the transforming effect of the gospel to the watching world around us and that you might be seen. Famous. In your name, amen.